Welcome to The Wrap Up, our podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. Welcome back to my co-host, The Wrap's assistant managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Hey, Adam. Hello, we're back. We've got two new podcasts in a row because there's just that much to discuss. That's right. Oh my God, it's so busy. This week, we're going to dig into how a whole lot of executive departures and the C-suites of the movie studios and networks are affecting the business. We're also going to talk about a pledge, a Hollywood pledge to curb on-screen gun violence, which is pretty interesting. And then uh, we're going to talk about a journalist who basically forced Rebel Wilson to come out as gay all our interesting headlines. Then later in the show, we're going to sit down with the co-creator and one of the lead actors of Hacks, Paul Downs, to talk about HBO Max's excellent second season, which we loved. And we're going to talk about the potential box office boom in the month of June with the Raps box office reporter, Jeremy Fuster. Yes, it is an incredibly packed show. Uh, Let's get into it after some words from this week's sponsor, Lifetime. With over 21 million viewers, the queen of pop, Janet Jackson, takes control with TV's number one original documentary of the year. Over five years in the making, Janet Jackson tells her untold story, revealing her most intimate moments ever caught on camera. Janet Jackson is a riveting, revealing, and unfiltered look at the legendary artist with never-before-seen footage and some shocking revelations. Janet Jackson a lifetime documentary event for your consideration. Sharon, is it just me or does it feel like there's a game of musical chairs happening at the executive level of a number of major companies right now? It it is definitely not just you. And it is a game of musical chairs because you're taking away some chairs and there's nowhere for these executives to sit. Exactly. Yeah. You know, last week we talked about the shocking ouster of Disney executive Peter Rice, which itself came on the heels of the departures of Warner Media CEO Jason Kylar, Warner Brothers movie chief Toby Emmerich, and his CEO OO Carolyn Blackwood. Plenty more where that came from. Uh, and Sharon, this week you wrote a really great piece about the recent wave of layoffs in the executive executive suites at the various entertainment companies. And what was really interesting, you wrote about what kind of impact this might have on the industry. Um, so what's going to happen next? Well, I think what's interesting about this is that when you have somebody like Peter Rice, who we talked about quite a lot last week, who was summarily fired in the middle of the week last week, is where does he go? Somebody like Peter Rice spent uh, almost uh, 30 years of his career at Fox, where he rose from, you know, basically an entry level and was a kind of favored son, although not an actual son of Rupert Murdoch. And he's one of the people who came with Fox uh, as they merged into Disney, and he could have been a contender to take over the CEO job, maybe not right away, but certainly in that pipeline. And him losing this position, you know, you kind of look around and say, where where could he go? Because he's very much at the peak of his career, very experienced, very well-respected, and well-liked by enough people. <clears throat> if not every person, I think it's, it would be <laughs> unreasonable to expect that everybody likes you, but there really isn't somewhere obvious for Peter to go. And the same thing is actually true of Jason Kylar. The same is true of a Toby Emmerich who took a producing deal on the lot. Uh, you also had Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi who were dismissed 
at MDM as, uh, as part of the merger with Amazon, which I thought was like, why would you get rid of Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi, two people who really know how to make movies, who really know the talent, um, and who work well together and who had been reviving the fortunes of MGM. I'll turn around. Uh, they were suddenly hired for the job Toby Emmerich had. And by the way, both Mike DeLuca and Toby Emmerich came up through New Line and have that same kind of uh, sensibility and experience. But the truth is that the industry has just contracted and it's going to continue to contract. And when I talk to a bunch of executives around town, some of whom are former heads of studios who are now producing or sitting back and watching, they're like, yeah, there are fewer jobs and that is going to continue. Sony will get bought. Lionsgate will get bought. Paramount will get bought. There will be more consolidation. So it is interesting to me. It feels like these are a lot of people who are very much at the peak of their careers who don't really have a place to deploy their knowledge and experience. Well, it also feels like from my vantage point, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like we're losing a lot of content people. We're losing a lot of creative people in favor of more of the numbers mm -hmm. people, because as the consolidations happen, the head of the company is no longer the head of the film studio. It's the head of the conglomerate that also makes microwaves. You know, Well, you do need both. And I think that there are some of both. But you can be sure that the person who's issuing the numbers is not the person who's cutting his own job. Yeah. He's staying. Yeah. So, um, and that is also what happened when we talked last week about this, what seems very transparently to be a power play by Bob Chapek, the CEO of Disney, to eliminate a potential competitor for his job when he's going through a tough time as CEO. Um, it still, it's, it still leaves, uh, I suppose, an opportunity for somebody else to step in, whether it's Dana Walden, to potentially challenge Bob Chapek so it doesn't necessarily solve that problem. But certainly with the tech companies and the streamers coming in strong, I think you're right. There's more of that type of executive that will be favored in this period of time. And I don't know that that's good overall for creativity. Does it feel like the... You know, the shuffling in the past, it used to be, you know, Alan Horner was at Warner Brothers and then he went to Disney. Like, does it feel like mm -hmm. that era is maybe over? Is that kind of what you're hearing? It's not even what I'm hearing. I think all of us are just sort of seeing that, that the number of pieces on the chessboard have been diminished. And so that's just an empirical fact. So there are fewer positions. And even at Disney, there's things have been consolidated. And you have Warner Brothers is now Discovery and CBS is now CBS is now Paramount. So by necessity, they need, they need fewer people, actually. And then at the same time, as the tech companies really assert their dominance, they're often going to be bringing in people from their world, more like a Mike Hopkins who came from Hulu, who's now running Amazon, more like um, Jeff Blackburn, who was at Amazon, who is not a content person at all. So it's, uh, it's something to watch. And um, I think there's been different versions of this going on probably for 10 years, but it's just very noticeable as these waves of consolidation seem to come one upon the other faster and faster. So well, and as the as the content wars get ever more competitive, uh, fewer yeah. eyeballs to uh, to get people to get those big breakout hits. Yeah.
Yeah. So meanwhile, elsewhere in Hollywood, a lot of people in the industry are very concerned and some are taking action in the wake of these devastating mass shootings, which just seem to be an epidemic in our society. This past week, over 200 writers, directors, actors signed a show your safety pledge, uh, which is a promise to depict guns safely on screen. This statement was signed by everyone from Judd Apatow to Shonda Rhimes to Jimmy Kimmel. It reads in part, quote, now as America's gun violence epidemic worsens is the time to undertake responsibility in storytelling, depicting firearms and gun safety. And the pledge lays out a three-pronged approach to do that, which includes modeling responsible gun ownership, showing, showing consequences for reckless gun use, as well as reducing the number of scenes with children and guns. Adam, you think it's a good idea? It's interesting. I mean, th this has been a battle that's been raging on. You know, I grew up in the 90s when when the wave was uh, video games are turning your children violent. Um, that's right. I know there have been a number of studies on this. You know, I don't know that there's empirical evidence that it does, but there also, you know, there feels like there's a desensitization that that can happen. Um, so I don't know. I, d I don't love the idea of restricted creativity, but I am curious to see what this actually looks like in practice. Yeah, I was noticing that the people who signed the pledge are really not mostly people who make very gun-heavy movies. Judd Apatow, yeah, yeah. Shonda Rhimes, yeah. uh, Jimmy Kimmel. So I do think it's part of a general desire to do something, to show an effort and a willingness to take action on every front so that the gun lobby has less room to say, wait, it's mental health, wait, it's Hollywood. And Hollywood can say, no, we'll own our part of this, which as you say, Adam, there is not evidence that making movies with gun violence in them um, engenders gun violence. And again, same kind of comparison we make all the time, these movies and television shows are shown all over the world and they do not have mass shootings, anything like we do here. But <clears throat> I guess it's anything but the guns <laughs> is, the, is apparently the, 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 the world through the looking glass that we live in. And let's really hope this package that the, this uh, bipartisan committee in the Senate came up with will actually pass. But you're right. You know, I just want to say, yeah, say what you're going to say, then I'll, then I'll. Well, I was going to say, I think you're right. I think it it does feel like a, not a ploy, but a like, you know, if Congress isn't going to act, we're doing something. We have done something. We put something on paper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look, we are doing a thing is what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do take your point, like nodding in the direction of we will censor ourselves seems to suggest we recognize that we might be contributing to the problem. And I don't think there's absolutely anything wrong with that, by the way. It's, it's, to me, it's always been an absurdity to say that we think movies and storytelling can change the world, but when it comes to a bad consequence, you, you abdicate any responsibility and say, well, no, <clears throat> we can't prove that that leads to any bad behaviors. Of course, storytelling on a big screen that is meant to move you and excite you and spark ideas and get, and spark a reaction of some kind can also do that for ill, obviously. 
Um, I was definitely part of that reporting wave. And it's one it's a thing I actually won an award for when I was at the Washington Post, because I, uh, when the video game thing, this is after Columbine, went to uh, interview a community of video game creators in Texas. And it was so fascinating to hang out with them and listen to, just see the world they lived in, which was basically like living in these dark cubicles with lots of energy drinks. It was a very bizarre and isolated existence. They didn't have relationships, most of them with women. I hung out with them for the better part of a week. And they had themselves questions about whether what they were doing might relate to the violence in, in Columbine. That's probably close to 20 years ago. And as you point out, like maybe there is uh, not enough sensitivity about what gun violence is. I would argue all violence in movies because we're doing a lot of like chopping people up with knives and swords and machetes or burning or torture. You know, there's just so much kind of torture porn on television and, um, you know, Game of Thrones had such severe violence. I, I think it's worth taking a pause and talking about it. I think it's worth considering for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there we are. Well, uh, for our final headline of the week, the world welcomed actress Rebel Wilson with open arms when she came out as a member of the LGBTQ community earlier this month, which happens to be Pride Month. Happy Pride, everybody. Uh, revealing that she's in a relationship with a woman. Uh, then it subsequently came to light that she was actually pressured into coming out after a journalist at the City Morning Herald had threatened to do it for her. Uh, he gave her a deadline of two days to respond to his column about her new relationship before he published, uh, essentially giving her a ticking clock before she was going to be outed. The journalist, uh, Andrew Hornery, has since apologized, saying in part, quote, it is not the Herald's business to out people, and that is not what we set out to do. But I understand why my email has been seen as a threat. The framing of it was a mistake. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I kind of struggle with this one because I, I do think that I, as a journalist, I think about it and I, and I went back and I looked at, I read the, the email that he'd written her and he wasn't actually threatening her in the email. What he was saying is, um, I'm working on this story. What's your comment? We, we want to run it in two days. But then he came and confessed like he kind of did want to out her because the writer himself is gay and has strong feelings about whether people are willing to stand up and say, you know, identify themselves or not. And that is super personal. So um, I just want to live in a world where people can um, feel comfortable being who they are, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Right. So maybe that's a cop out of a question, but I do think this was in a gray zone, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, that's kind of standard practice. I'm reaching out for comment. I'm running this whenever. But on the other hand, this is a very sensitive issue. And, you know, people should feel comfortable to come out or, you know, talk about their personal lives, you know, how they see fit. So it's it's a tricky one. I'm, I'm with you. It's a gray area. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, Rebel, we think you're cool. However, whenever. And we're thrilled that you're in love. So that's nice. Right. Right. For sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, next up, it's time for the wax on, wax off portion of the show where Sharon gives her thoughts on her favorite person or moment of the week. Sharon, the floor is yours. All right. So this week's wax on and wax off has to be devoted to the January 6th hearings, which I hope everybody who's listening to this podcast is watching. I presume you are or getting the catch up on it later in the evening. Um, my wax on, Liz Cheney, you rock. 
Um, I know all of our, there are friends of mine out there who think that because of her position um, that we do not agree with on LGBTQ issues, that she is only momentarily somebody that we should admire. People are complicated is all I'm saying. And at this moment in time, she is standing up for our democracy. Liz Cheney is bravely speaking to history as the co-chair or whatever exactly her title is on this joint committee, which only has two Republicans on it. And she is balls out fearless. When she calls people a liar or she'll call people what they are and she, her reference to uh, an inebriated Rudy Giuliani, I mean, her, her prose has been very clear, very unequivocal and very easy to understand. And I hope and I actually believe that she may lead some Republicans to change their minds. And that's my wax off as well. Drunken Giuliani plotting Representative Loudermilk walking, um, walking uh, uh, so supposedly constituents through the tunnels of Congress the day before uh, January 6th. This perfidious lawyer Eastman who's um, peddling bogus legal theories that he knows are bogus, and finally, our patently and obviously criminal former President Donald Trump. All of these people are being outed in these hearings in a really clear way. My wax off is to them, and I hope that justice is served, by which I mean that criminal charges, where they should be brought, will be brought now that the truth of what happened on that day has been, is being clarified. That's it for Wax On, Wax Off. Next up, we're diving into one of the funniest shows on television, Hacks. The HBO Max series Hacks tells the story of a legendary Las Vegas comedian played by Gene Smart, who was forced to team up with a young comedy writer struggling to find work, played by Hannah Einbinder. The show's first season won three Emmys, including Best Directing and Writing for a Comedy Series, as well as Best Actress in a Comedy Series for Smart. It just wrapped up its acclaimed second season at HBO Max and has just been renewed for a third season. We are now delighted to welcome to the show co-creator and actor Paul Downs, who plays Deborah and Ava's beleaguered manager, Jimmy. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege. Welcome, Paul. We're so excited to talk to you. So I only have about 3 million questions, so we're going to take them one by one. I hope you have <laughs> some time carved Absolutely. out here. Thank this is you. a weekend, okay. right? It's a weekender. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Thank you all. <laughs> so, so you are the co-creator of the show with Lucia Agnello, uh, your partner, wife. Yes. And yes, Jen and Jen Sowski. That's correct. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, but you are also a part of this amazing cast, um, and you play this totally self-loathing character, Jimmy the agent, which I guess if, if you're an agent, by definition, you are a self-loathing person. I'm not quite sure. But where did you, did you, is that your contribution to the sort of creating that character? And then you're like, yeah, I'm just going to play him. You know, we, when we were conceptualizing the show and talking about this character, Deborah Vance, we were really you know, interested in doing a character study that involved her entire ecosystem. So obviously for a comedian, the comedy manager is kind of like an integral role. And we, we just always thought it would be funny that this guy was sort of young and signing new people like Ava Daniels, played by Hannah Einbinder, but also in our world, inherited clients of his father's. So he has a sort of like really old school person in Deborah Vance. Right. And he's kind of the, you know, the cornerstone that 
connects the two of them or forces them together kind of uh, against their right. will for better or worse. Uh, so it was always part of really the, the pitch of the show was to have this character be a part of it. And yeah, I always, I always planned to play it. It was always the plan. Okay. Do you know someone who is this person? No, I don't No. No, I mean, okay. you know, I think that there are really great and well-meaning and decent people in representation, you know, whether they're agents <laughs> or managers. And I feel like you often see the Ari Golds. You see like, you know, that's right. angry, angry sharks or, you know, people who are a little bit slimy. And so that was one thing we, we thought would be fun is doing something that's a little bit against type or, you know, against the, the typical agent or manager you see um, in this guy who's sort of gentle and honestly not a bro. Yeah, he's so not a bro. Yeah, and we, we, we felt it was really, um, you know, representation matters. And so we really wanted good representation of representation, you know? Okay, and, uh, that, that sounds like a joke, but you actually mean that, right? It is a joke. It, is it a was joke. a good one. It was a good joke. I wanted to pause so our listeners could appreciate that. <laughs> could stand and cheer. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and, and Jimmy's pushing against the grain of that bro culture is a, is a big part of season two, um, as well as Jimmy getting kind of an expanded arc in season two. How did how did those conversations come about? What it was What was it like for you to fill the role of director, co-writer, co-creator and now a larger supporting role in the show well that was part of the, the goal of season two in general kind of with every member of the ensemble we really wanted not only to deepen the storylines and relationships of all of the people in Deborah's ecosystem but also you know and we tried to do this very much so in season one um, where all of the stories dovetail together in the end so for example you know Kayla gets Ava this um, opportunity where she interviews for a job which is the very thing that makes Deborah feel betrayed and ends up, you know, in her getting fired and slapped in the end. And so we, we always want the characters that are in their orbit to impact their plot lines and not just sort of be, you know, perfunctory or sort of just satellites onto themselves. So um, this year, the sort of lingering issue of the email that Ava sends at the end of season one was something that naturally her manager might try and deal with and figure out if he could, you know, sweet talk the agents of these other writers who she sent the email to. And it just, as we were talking about it, it just, um, it just kind of came organically because we really do think about it story first. It's not like, we're like, oh, we really need more of XYZ character. We're just like, what, what works in the world of the show and what, you know, what story feels like it has great turns. I wanted to ask about a particular moment in the season and a particular scene um, in which you make a big, moral stance in this big uh, meeting of all of the partners and your colleagues and managers and agents. And it's a, it's very much a Jerry Maguire moment and you don't reference Jerry Maguire in there, but it seems like it's consciously either parodying or echoing Tom. Very Cruise. much. Very, yeah. very much. Very much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We, it was actually, and I think, the first couple of weeks, we do a blue sky where we just talk about, you know, flight of fancy, anything that could happen in the season. And it was in that um, that first two weeks, I think, that we talked about sort of what Jimmy's stand would be and, and how he, like his father, believed in this this person. Um, Deborah doesn't really fit in. She's someone who's cast aside. She's obviously the victim of sexism and ageism. And so we really wanted to... Um, make the stakes really high for Jimmy. And when we when we came up with the idea of him sort of quitting in this um, 
Jerry Maguire fashion, we thought, how funny would it be for the wind to be taken out of his sails by Kayla? Because, you know. It's so good. The two of them are a, a, a dynamic duo and they have to be together. So it just was like, it was so inherently funny that just the idea of that, the game of that, that it was something we looked forward to the entire season after we came up with it. It's so great. I was just looking for a goldfish somewhere. I was like, there's going to, there's going to be a fish somewhere just as like a, <laughs> no, no. like a bug, but I guess Kayla's a goldfish in a way you know and then he like begrudgingly goes along with it and she's like no we're partners now like we're partners well, <laughs> it just it's really my assistant yeah that, that's yeah. the thing we wanted also to make you know kayla make some sense and be a little bit more than just this flighty assistant so in episode five they kind of have a heart to heart and you learn that kayla really wants to be a manager she wants to do what jimmy does and we try to sort of you know peel back some layers of that character and give a little bit more depth to her um, and then she makes a really compelling argument when she says, you know, if the daughter of the founder of this company leaves to help you start your own, sends a pretty powerful message. And Jimmy cannot help but say, yeah. Well, she's right. Yeah, You're she's right. totally right. Yeah. I mean, I, this actress is fantastic. I mean, we love uh, Jean Smart, and she, but she's been celebrated a lot. And we love Hannah Einbinder. We've already put her on our cover. Tell us about this actress and how you found her, who plays your assistant. She's wild. She just says anything that comes into her mouth. She's so crazy. She, you know, she is somebody that is like an amalgamation of some of the assistants we've encountered um, via. No. 100%. <laughs> Yes, 100%. She is she is an amalgamation of people that we've encountered. And one of the things that we find funny in that kind of a role, because sometimes, you know, um, it, it's interesting to us when people have like a lot of self-confidence, but are also really kind of nervous and bad at their job. We just find that dynamic really funny. And that happens whether you're an assistant or, you know, I feel like in any walk, that's something that people have encountered. And that was something that Meg Stalter in her videos and things she's done online kind of played that character game on her own, you know, that she was, she's really self-confident, but kind of has like a stuttery, bumbly way of talking. And it just like oh. was this juxtaposition that we were like, oh, this feels akin to what we want to do with that character. And so she actually auditioned, well, we, we knew her, you know, from her videos online. And then Meg and I were on a stand-up show together and met for the first time in person. And it was a show where it was a kind of hard to, for the comics to watch each other, but we both sort of like snuck in to see each other's set and we instantly hit it off. And then she actually auditioned with well, the scene that um, happens at the end of season one in the hotel room <laughs> where she comes <laughs> into the hotel room in the laundry room. <laughs> so that was her audition fantastic. scene, which was a tough scene to audition with, but she was so funny and so great. that. Did she wear a nightie in the audition? She didn't, but it was so funny because she was auditioning from Ohio. It was like deep in pandemic and she had moved from New York back home for a few months. So she was in Ohio uh, trying to figure out a lamp situation in her parents' living room. It was, the, the preamble to the audition was funny enough to get her cast, but she was also very brilliant. And does she contribute any ad, ad living to her scenes or is that's all written? What's nice is that um, because she and I both have an improvisational background and because, you know, um, we have a lot of fun together, we do play a lot in the scenes. Um, that said, I would say it's probably 90% scripted because to be honest with you, we have a really ambitious schedule and we try and get a lot done. We do like eight pages a day. And so we don't have a ton of room to, to fully just go off. But um, she and I, I think more than most people kind of, ad lib and play yeah 
I wanted to ask you about the finale because, you know, Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy Go, takes yeah. this really big stance and I can imagine in, you know, in the writer's room, you're looking, Jimmy has to do something to prove to Deborah that he has the teeth to do it, that he can do this alone. How do you come up with the idea that someone dies during her taping and he lies about it? You know, that was another thing that came out. Actually, it actually was how the idea for that came up while we were shooting season one, we were like, this would be an insane thing. And also we kind of made a joke of, um, would it be funny? Not funny, but is is it a funny slash tragic thing for like Deborah Vance to have an elderly audience? And so this happens every single show. And we were like, no, that's too broad. But then we we're like, oh, you know what? Might be great for what we were going to do in season two, which was this special taping. And what's so funny was after we um, shot that, we've gotten so many people have said to us, oh, I was at a show that that very thing happened. Sadly, I think it happens more than you'd want. <laughs> I think it happens a lot, you know, that, you know, live, wow. live comedy, live concerts. We just did an interview and someone was like, yeah, I was at a concert when that happened and it really killed the mood. The band did not have a good show. So um, I, I weirdly think sadly that is kind of a phenomenon that happens. But once we had the idea for it, it also seemed like kind of the perfect thing for Jimmy to prove how cunning he could be since that was the very thing that Deborah wasn't sure he had in him. So, you know, him coming back and saying he's okay when the man had absolutely perished. Um, but you don't, but you don't think that Deborah's character, Jean's character, Deborah knew that when she decided to stick with him and not. Uh, that um, it, that's on us if it wasn't clear because we do we did want it to be like I'm so glad that man is okay when when they see each other in the dressing room that she's like I know exactly what you did that okay. man was not okay and okay okay you did it brother I, I'll you know, go I think, back and rewatch it. I think that's the thing that turns her because I think that's one of, you know, Deborah Vance's fatal flaws is that she is career before relationship. And even though she has a long relationship with Jimmy and with his father, at the end of the day, this is a moment for her and she really needs the support of a, a management company behind her. And Jimmy's now struck out on his own. It's kind of a precarious situation. So she is very much considering leaving him until he proves himself in that moment. Mm. The, the final scene is really very sad, kind of brought a tear for this, uh, for this season where um, Deborah breaks up with Ava. And um, if you haven't seen the series yet, too bad, you should have watched it by now. Because um, <laughs> that was a big, big old spoiler. What, what, how is that taking you into season three? I'm sorry, what was the question? How is it taking you, that moment sets you up for season three, obviously. So give us a, like a sense of where we're going. Well, yeah, we wanted to do something a little different than we did last year, which is, you know, last year we had a really big cliffhanger in this email that was sort of hanging over Ava's head. Mm -hmm. This year we wanted to have a little bit more of a resolution and yet also have the audience think, well, what's next? How is this going to go? And I guess in a way, the cliffhanger is how the hell are they going to get back together? Because for us, this is very much a love story between these two creative collaborators and kindred spirits. And so um, I think that's the thing that hopefully it leaves audiences wanting, which is just like how and when, how will these two women survive on their own um, slash how will they find their way back to each other or will they? Well, there were a lot of people who felt like that was a series finale. There were arguments working on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this, that like, no, Hacks is over. It's done. 
<laughs> I know, you know, I, there are, I feel like there are some shows and that's their philosophy that they, they write every season finale to feel like it could be a series finale, you know, depending on what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it, in a way it's flattering that people thought it was potentially over because I hope that means they felt like it was satisfying and that there was a resolution. But for us, it was very much only the second chapter in this story. And when we pitched the show, we've, we've talked about this in the past, but when we pitched the show, we pitched what in our minds would be the series finale um, hmm. which we're a little ways away from. And, you know, who knows, that could change as, as we continue to make seasons, but this wasn't the end in our mind. In your mind, how many seasons does this have? That isn't something I think we're 100% sure of, but certainly not um, 17, you know? Uh, <laughs> I think, um, you know, four, five, six seasons. I, I, I kind of I can't say because we... I think as we, as we get toward these big tent poles that we know we want to do, we, we see how much story we have and how much we, you know, can play with within those tent poles. And, you know, I think we'll, I think only time will tell, to be honest. Hmm. It felt like there was no rest between uh, season one and season two for you guys. How, how quickly are you guys moving back into production for season three? We're talking about that right now because that's, that's true. We, we really kind of went from, the final day of airing uh, last year into right into writing um, season two. So there really was no break between seasons. Um, and so we're trying to figure out, you know, what we usually do is we do like a, as I mentioned, this blue sky period. And then, then we take a, a couple weeks to just step back and think about, you know, where we want things to go. Uh, and so we're gonna do that. And it's it sort of last year, it also really came together quickly we, in those two weeks, had a really clear sense of the shape of the season. And so if that happens again, we'll be off to the races. But, you know, it's another it's another time will tell answer. I have a last question for you, and then we'll let you go. You're you're the only uh, guy, really, on the creative, the creative leadership of this show. And then mm-hmm. in also in among the principal cast members, this, there's 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 other men in the cast. But yeah. how does it, how does that play? actually, as somebody who's writing two female sensibilities on the show? You know, it's funny because I also came from writing and, and acting on Broad City before this, which was also for right. yeah, right. Um And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that I'm so lucky to be surrounded by such talented women. And I also, I, I've said this before too, I, I don't, I don't know where it came from, but my, my favorite standups have always been female standups. And so I've always not only watched them and admire them, but want to write for them. So for me, I feel lucky that I get to do it. And I think, um, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like a lot of writers rooms are mostly male and it's, it's, I honestly feel really fortunate that most of the writers rooms and casts that I've been a part of have been mostly female. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I mean, in terms of how it works, I just try and make the girls laugh. That's how it works pretty much. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it's, it's interesting that it it is an interesting thing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. It just happened. I think also, you know what the truth is, is that I, I like Jimmy feel like alt male in a way, you know, I'm not bro-y. And so I think in a way mm -hmm. that's 
really helped me work in these rooms and on these shows and and write in the voices of these characters. And nobody says to you, hey, how would you know how she's feeling at this moment if you're writing something or? No, not really, not really. I mean, you know, of course we try and have um, voices that um, are represented on screen in our writer's room. And so, you know, this year we had, um, Susie Essman was a consultant for the show and we talked to her for a oh, while because she's obviously oh, she to a so Devin man. She's so funny and so smart and so, and such a good actor. You know, I feel her, like on her, 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 like her cameo was like fantastic. Unbelievable. So good. Yeah. So good. And, and Carol Liefer is another consultant, um, consulting producer mm. on our show. Um, oh. Who's a fantastic stand-up, and again, somebody who came up in the '80s doing stand-up, and 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 really had the lived experience that Deborah has. But also, yeah. I feel like, you know, I, I I feel like when you're writing, if you can be empathetic enough to step into someone's shoes, you can really, you know, if you can try it on. I think that's the goal, right? In in, in not only writing the show but making the show, and watching the show. I think that's why female stories are so important because I think it's so much easier for some reason for women to relate to male stories and to watch male stories than it is for men to watch female stories, which is too bad. And I think they're partly it's just because there haven't been as many of them as there are shows about straight white men. So mm. I hope that in watching shows like this and having strong female characters, you know, it, it increases empathy in, in viewers and, um, and, you know, in so doing, hopefully there's more people, there's more guys that can write for, gals you know yeah amen to that well thanks paul for coming on the show we're thank fans you for my pleasure thank you for watching thank the show so thank you for such great it's questions appreciate it please rest <laughs> up you guys take your rest we'll try that's right i gotta go, I gotta go burp somebody but yes we will, we will. <laughs> i've been there <laughs> oh then rest rest won't be happening anytime yeah, soon yeah, something yeah. tells me no i'm asleep to i'm in a fugue state but it's okay it's okay you know what i'm at seven months and i'm still in a fugue state so good luck. are you uh, yes i know i need to hear it gets so easy it's better it's easy you sleep that's what everyone sleep. tells me but it has not happened yet about so. 10 years you'll be Knocking good on wood. okay 10 okay okay you know what it's good i'll be weird tired it's it's actually good it's good for yeah. creativity. It's good for the work. It's, it's good. exactly. It's the work. The work doesn't show it, so maybe it's, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank All you. Right, take care. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye. Take care. All right. For our final feature story in this episode, we're forced to consider: Is the big screen back? Is it? The Raps' own Jeremy Foster recently took a close look at the June box office and he sees a potential $1 billion month in the cards thanks to the success of Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World Dominion, and now Disney Pixar's Lightyear. Uh, welcome, Jeremy. Talk to us Talk to us about Hollywood has been trying to dig out of this pandemic hole for two years. Are we finally in some semblance of normalcy? Um, I think the key word is some semblance, but the answer is yes. It, there's still going to be a ways to go. It, it's probably going to be, it's probably going to take the entirety of 2022 for the box office to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. But we had two films, Taka Maverick and Jurassic World Dominion, that both opened north of 120 million within three weeks of each other. And that's mm -hmm. something that we hadn't had at the box office since theaters reopened. So it's a big leap. And halfway through June so far, the amount, the amount of overall domestic grosses is around 500 million. So it's not a guarantee that it will be a billion dollar June, 
but it's the closest that we've ever been to having a billion dollar junior. It's going to come down to whether or not Lightyear is able to overperform and whether Jurassic World Dominion and Taka Maverick continue to leg out with audiences, but all indications are that they will. Mm. That's amazing. Well, well, in Lightyear, you know, this is, is this kind of the first big test of the family friendly box office? I mean, so many of these family movies were held back and held back and pushed back. You know, Minions is coming out, what, like next month? Well, it's not the first big test. I'd say it's the next big test. The first big test was back in April when Sonic the Hedgehog 2 came out. And that had an opening uh, 72 million. It legged out to 191 million uh, domestic and 400 million worldwide. Really strong start. It was it was better than what the first Sonic did. So now we're going from that to you know now we have a Pixar film, and then as you said, in, in, in a couple of weeks there will be uh, a Minions film, and I think both of those films are expected to open better than Sonic will. Um, the question with Lightyear is how well will it do? Right now, I'm hearing in the eighty million dollar range, it's not going to perform like a Toy Story movie, because while it's based on a Toy Story character, it's not the same Buzz Lightyear as those, as the ones in those films. And it's not Tom Hanks. Yeah, it, well, it's not Tim Allen. It's uh, Chris Evans. It's not Tim I, Allen, I, right? Sorry, yeah. It's Chris Evans as Buzz. Um, so the, the reviews for the film have been positive, saying you know it's a it's a fun little sci-fi summer popcorn flick, but it's not like it's not elite Pixar. It's not as strong as turning red. So it's likely that they, that film will still get a lot of strong turnout from family audiences. But when you look at a film like Toy Story 4 or Incredibles 2, like the ones that have really, really done well for Pixar in the summer recently, those got a lot of support from general audiences as well. And with Top Gun and Dominion in theaters and still going strong, it's possible that those general audiences may go to those films instead of Lightyear. Hmm. I wonder, is there also audience confusion over, I, I mean, there's a lot, it's better known that like Disney films will be on Disney Plus. It's lesser known that Jurassic World Dominion will eventually be on Peacock. Do you anticipate any, like, oh, I'm holding out for Disney Plus, given that Lightyear will probably be uh, on streaming within 45 days? You know, that is a, that, that is a good question. I think, again, like, in terms of the family audiences, there have there hasn't been a film since Sonic 2 and the bad guys for families. It's been over a month since we've had a film for families. And usually when a film like Lightyear comes in to fill that niche after weeks and weeks and weeks of it not being there, the families are going to go out. There's not that wait until streaming kind of vibe. But I, I do wonder if that is something for you know, for those general audiences I just mentioned that you know, there's other films in theaters that they see those films like, oh, I got to see that in theaters. And then they look at Lightyear, maybe it doesn't have that kind of like must see immediately. Like there's maybe a little bit of mild intrigue, but yeah, I'll, I'll wait until it comes out on, on Disney Plus. Like that, We're going to see what the demographic breakdown is for this film compared to you know, a Toy Story 4 or a Finding Dory or an Incredibles 2 and, and see what um, what kind of audiences are really wanting to see this film right away. It, it, what, what is interesting is that this is actually, Lightyear is, the, uh, is an animated film that was 
worked on with IMAX. They IMAX created a virtual camera so wow. that this would be an animated film presented in IMAX. It, hmm. It's one of different ways that IMAX is trying to expand beyond the big blockbuster stuff like, so that they can have animated films with IMAX support. So this was a film that was designed with the idea of like, we have to see this on the big screen. But again, like compared to a Top Gun or a Jurassic World, our audience is going to buy into that. Hmm. What do you what would you expect or need to see Jeremy in terms of the next movies coming out and how they're going to perform that would say to you, okay, the box office is back and people are going back to theaters as part of their regular entertainment habits. Well, I've been asked a lot, is the box office back? And it's such a hard question to answer because the box office has so many different little um, sections of it. So I would say that in terms of like the blockbusters and yeah, the, the, the blockbuster box office is back and it's been back mm -hmm. since Spider-Man No Way Home came out. Mm -hmm. So like for the next, you know, for the next six weeks, we're probably still going to see a big boom period and it's going to feel a lot like you know, pre-pandemic, but from Top Gun, I would say all the way through Nope towards the end of July. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a Jordan lot Peele of, movie. Mm -hmm. Yes. We're going to see a lot of really good numbers. We're going to see good numbers for, uh, for Minions, we're going to see good numbers for Thor Love and Thunder. We're going to see pretty good numbers for Nope as well. Um, and even for even smaller films like The Black Phone and Elvis, we'll probably see like, pretty solid numbers for them too. I, I feel like the next two months, e even if it doesn't quite get to the pre-pandemic June, July numbers, mm -hmm. they're going to be pretty good. Like, it, it, it's going to feel like a pre-pandemic summer that's like slightly below the average but mm -hmm. after july we're going to be seeing in august and september it's it's going to be a much slower period like the the, the films that come out are going to have much more niche appeal there's not going to be a lot of big four quadrant films and september doesn't really have a film like it where there was just a lot of turnout for those movies so there's still going to there's still dry periods that are coming up and we mm -hmm. also know how the awards box office and how like the more mature films the prestige films the specialty films we don't know how they're going to perform in the fall after they were practically non-existent during this last oscar cycle so the biggest element of the box office the blockbusters they are back it's just a question of everything else and we're probably not mm -hmm. going to get the answer to that for several months to come mm -hmm. Does That's the performance crazy. of Downton Abbey, A New Era, give you any any sense of indication of those older audiences that usually turn out for the awards well, fair? Yeah, again, like Downton Abbey was was another example where it's like, like when I when I when I'm looking at a film like a Top Gun, like I'm not judging that film by the COVID curve, but with Downton Abbey, I had to. Um, Downton Abbey, uh, if I look at the numbers, it's performing at less than half of what the first. Uh, Downton Abbey did. It took it about two, two and a half weeks for the new Downton Abbey film to make what the first Downton Abbey film made in its opening weekend. Now that part of that's just like for these sequels of films that cater to all audiences, historically they've always done worse, that well worse than what the originals did. But mm -hmm. it is an example of how 
Downton Abbey, A New Era did bring some people back to theaters. There was some signs of progress. It was doing better than a film like King Richard or West Side Story that had come out in the winter and just nobody showed up to that because the older audiences weren't comfortable with going back to theaters yet. But it's still well short of what we saw for those kinds of films in 2018 and 2019. Great. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on the wrap up. We love having you on from time to time to check in on how the box office is doing. And good to know that in June, at least, it's going to be doing great. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. And that it does it for the latest episode of the wrap up. Thank you to all of our listeners and remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.